Amen. Ah, you knew that one, I tell you. That was robust. Thank you so much for such a good lead-in to our talk tonight. You know, I'm so delighted by God. That was the theme, by the way, of a conference we went to yesterday, a group of us. And it was such a good theme. And it was well presented by most of the speakers. I was one of the speakers. Uh, And it was such a good reminder that the reason we're here is because there's a God who is delightful, absolutely delightful. And he reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there's a whole story behind that. And we get to just tickle a part of it here tonight. But one of the things that I wanted to do sort of an extended introduction on is um, some of the complexity that goes with how we engage this one who is so delightful. If you thought about it at all, um, what's it like to engage a God who is there when we're going through some very hard times? I went off to, uh, for Easter to visit family and, and do some ministry at the church that supports me, my home church in the States. Um, and as soon as I came back, the first weekend, I went to a, a church in Luzerne and spoke there. And at that church, we're planning for a a retreat in September where I'll be speaking. They wanted me to come and speak and share. And the woman who is one of the main coordinators for this meeting, a lovely lady, and she caused me to be delighted by God as I watched what was going on, on and heard her story. She has a husband who is still alive but is basically lost to her in this respect. He fell and had an injury. He was carrying some things, stumbled on a staircase, fell and hit his head, and the frontal lobe on his left side was so badly damaged, uh, the place where he feels, where he has his feelings, that he no longer has any capacity for feeling. It's just not there. And so the man she's married to now has all the capacities to think, to function, but he has no feelings, and as a result, there's not the person there that she married. And the reason I'm delighted by God is to see this woman's devotion, even after these years, of just, in effect, having an emotional vacuum to the one that she loves, cares for, married. And she's committed to that. She's committed to him till he he dies, whenever that may be. And there was a beauty in that, because here's this woman absolutely devoted despite the circumstances that would crush many other people. What was so striking to me is it illustrated also something that I had heard about and in fact had run into years earlier when I was teaching a course in ethics. One of the things that I've always taught in my ethics course from my Bible study is that the center of the soul is the heart. And that was reinforced to me, as I'll mention a little bit later on, by the fact that in the Reformation, Martin Luther... Philip Melanchthon, some of the others in the early days of the Reformation, made that point. They said, it's the heart that defines how we operate. The Bible says that constantly, but the philosophers emphasize the mind and the will. But that's not what the Bible emphasizes. And sometimes we'll even turn the, the heart into a function of the mind and the will. Good Stoics that we tend to be because we've been raised in a culture that's so oriented to the mind and the will as if that's the starting point of who we really are. But the Bible continually says, no, it's the heart. You say, well, if you mean heart, you don't really mean the affections. And the answer is yes, yes, we do mean the affections, the emotions, absolutely. Because God designed us to be responders 
to the one who is love. The God who has an eternal abiding love relationship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, mind functions in the context of what we love. We operate on the basis of what we love. And the, the, the movie, the video piece that I watched uh, on television was uh, featuring the research. It was a, a high-level uh, documentary, really, that had to do with how the soul or how the person functions in the mind. A neurobiologist was the chief researcher, a fellow named Antonio Damasio, uh, who is a highly regarded scientist, a neurobiologist, not at all a believer. But the summary point, the title to the program was Thinking by Feeling. And what they did is offered a presentation to make the point of a man who had had a stroke and he too had lost his ability to have any feelings. And he could think, he could operate, he had good memory, he could... They showed him looking at some wedding pictures and he could identify the people from 30, 40 years earlier when they'd had the wedding, what kind of car they had, where they lived. He was articulate. He could do things, mow the lawn. But you had to beware because if he mowed the lawn, he would mow over any beautiful flowers if there wasn't a good guard path because he had no feelings. He had no capacity to choose one thing over another. And that was the point that was true in both the case of this man in Luzerne and the man in this video, that there was no ability to make choices because we choose on the basis of our affections. That is, our mind needs to know what is more important, what is less important. What do we love? What do we not love? We're designed as lovers. And that's why the great commandment to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength is the very core of who we are. It explains and, and basically says live according to the design. And so a neurobiologist is just discovering that we're wired on the basis of our creation and that we're made as lovers. And that's who we really are. And so what we're going to see in the text tonight, that's context. What we're saying right now is context for what we'll see in Ephesians. So let's unpack Ephesians with this little bit of a preliminary and walk into the text in a way that um, I think is pretty striking. So I hope I can communicate it effectively enough. Let me pray to that end, please. Father, I do ask that tonight as we look at this text in Ephesians that we would have our hearts tender towards your heart, that we would love you because you first loved us, and that our hearts would be open to your love. And that we, we know that we're not discarding our minds, but rather that our minds submit to your love and respond to that love and make choices on the basis of that love. So I do pray that we would hear your heart tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, two assumptions then in Ephesians, the text that we're looking at. In fact, all of Ephesians. Remember, it starts out, for you were chosen in Christ Jesus. How? In love we were chosen, back in chapter 1. So the whole book, the letter to the Ephesians, has a whole, the letter that we call the letter to the Ephesians, has a whole set of features in it that emphasize love. But we're picking it up here midway. And the first assumption is that we really were made as responders. And that our choices in life are responses to what we see, to what we hear, to what what stimulates us, what we're surrounded with, we're responders. 
advertisers know that. That's where the adverts are so powerful. They wouldn't be spending so much money if they didn't know that's what would cause us to respond. Believe me. Even if you say, what are they advert? That, that's crazy. Why would I want that? Well, after you watch it 40 times, you go out and buy it. They can manage what we like and what we feel over a period of time. They know that. They'll just say, shall we give them the logic? No, we'll put, we want a bloke to buy it, we'll put a beautiful lady next to the product. Well, we know how to do that. You see, they speak to our emotions. They speak to our hearts. They certainly understand that. Sometimes theologians don't get it. But the, the people who do merchandising certainly understand what it is that stirs us. We're responders. And when you think about it, what is it that we do? We respond through our eyes. The eyes are the entry point to the soul. Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount. Even Paul himself prayed that in chapter 1, verse 18 of Ephesians. He says, I pray that the eyes of your hearts will be illuminated, be enlightened with things about Jesus Christ. And he lists three things there. And that's another sermon. We, won't, we don't get to go there today. But you see, it's that invitation to look, to see with your heart. Let your heart sample what it is that God is offering. Are you delighted with him? Do you find him delightful? You should. And there's the second assumption that Paul is carrying in here. He's saying that, in effect, we are made to delight in God because he's the most delightful and lovely of all persons as a human because he reveals to us the beauty of the Godhead. And if we find anything beautiful and attractive in this world, who designed it? Who purposed it? Who created it? There's not a bit of beauty to be found that didn't pour out of the fountain of God's creativity. He's the one who is the source of beauty. But the beauty of God is much deeper than any physical pieces that we might find attractive. It's the beauty of that relationship. And that's why that woman in Luzerne was so beautiful. She loved her husband deeply, even in the loss of his ability to respond or to initiate towards her. And all of a sudden you see in a relationship that is still sound, Despite such a loss, you see something beautiful has happened there that I'm not sure I, I quite grasp. But boy, what a lens that is into a greater love because it's her love for Christ that sustains the context for the love for her husband. Something very rich there. So Paul is presuming that. And he, he also knows that the only way to cure a false affection is by having a true affection. Have you ever thought about that? A lot of times we'll presume that the best way to get rid of a false affection, the Stoics believe this. I don't know. Most of us don't know who the Stoics were. Um, Zeno walked among the Stoa. That's where the Stoics get the name from. Seneca was a Roman promoter. Calvin did his first ever book on Seneca related to Stoicism. And yet none of us even know who the Stoics were. We just go... Well, some historical bit. But the reality is most of what we have in our Western educational culture today emphasizes the idea there's the mind, the will, and uh, oh, the emotions. Those three dimensions. And they're all kind of in conversation with each other. So we turn inward to say, what does my mind think? What does my will choose? Oh, what are my feelings feeling? And the trick is to be truly godly by that tradition is to team up the mind and the will, the two reliable parts of who we are, 
Because according to that tradition, God is pure mind, pure will, but has no affections. Because in that tradition, the idea that God has affections, well, the affections were viewed as parts of our appetites. And God has no physical body, so therefore he would have no appetite. And therefore, that's the ungodly part of who we are. Because we're bodily, we have appetites. So what you need to do, according to the Stoics, is use your mind, use your will, have your disciplines, have your intellect, and then you can overcome those faulty desires. And the chief end, the ambition of a good Stoic was what? There's a Greek word, and I won't even translate it for you. Apatheia. You can achieve apatheia. Okay, I will tell you what word. Apathy comes from it. You hear that? Isn't that striking? And believe me, there's a lot of our stuff in the Christian culture today that says, get a lot of knowledge, strengthen your willpower, and overcome those faulty affections. Well, I hate to tell you, it's just not biblical. It's just not biblical. What is it that draws us out of the love that so traps us, the desires? How about a stronger desire? a noble desire, a proper desire. If, if it was a desire that drove Adam and Eve into sin, it seems like that was stronger than their will or their intellect. Something so powerful that it deceived and captured them. The only solution is to have something more powerful of the same kind, a deeper affection. And the most lovely of all that ever existed in creation is the firstborn of creation. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go back into the text. I have to give this as context for what we're going to talk about tonight. So listen to what the text has to say. All right. Now I'm going to have to tell you that I did my preparation with my English Standard Version. And I know you've got your NIVs there. So I'm going to try and wobble back and forth between the two because I did take a good hard look at the NIV. Um, uh, and don't let it distract you, please. Um, uh, it says, don't walk in the way that the Gentiles walk. Or, as the NIV would put it, so I tell you now and insist on this, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. So that's, that's verse 17, chapter 4. Now, I, like, I, I do like the ESV version on this one, because the, the, the underlying metaphor is literally the word walk. Okay? Now, think about it. It's translated as living. Now think about it. What, is it that, what does it mean for me to live? Well, I do things, right? Fair enough? What is one of the most fundamental things that I do in a day? I walk. And by using the language of walk, it's pretty tangible. Think about it. Ron Frost, the walker. I'm going to show you how skilled I am. What's that called? A step, right. It's another step. I'm walking. Do you get it? Oh. I can tell. <laughs> Maybe I should scratch this point out. And, uh, hmm. But here's the point I want to make. Notice that walking is to travel in a direction. And I'm taking steps to get there. And each step has to be considered as a means to get me to the outcome, the goal that I'm seeking. And that goal is what I desire. I may not be thinking right now, oh, I'm doing this because of my deep emotions. But there's something out there that I value that's making me take these steps. And that's the point we're wanting to make tonight. Now, I could be 
walking as the Gentiles do. Now, what's the difference between walking as a believer in Christ Jesus? I'm walking in his direction. But what do the Gentiles do? Do you get the point? What direction are we walking? I don't want you to walk, Paul says, in the way the Gentiles do. Just don't go there. Don't do that. Don't live that way. Leave it alone. He says, it's where you used to go, but right now the problem is the futility of their minds. The way they're thinking is futile. Oh, dear. Sorry about that. I did this thing about the Stoics, and then it turns out Paul starts out as a Stoic. The first thing he says is, don't be thinking like the Gentiles do. Peter, could you pick up and finish the sermon? Well, never mind. I, I, I better finish it. I started it. So we go on and see how oh, it really is pretty, pretty stoic here, pretty intellectual. It says, um, for they were darkened in their, in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. So what we have here is that the thinking becomes futile. Their, their understanding is darkened because, in fact, I think what Paul is reflecting on is what Jesus says back in John chapter 3. Remember, God so... Son, anyone know that verse uh, 16? God so... I think I've done this before. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And then a couple of verses later it says, But men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And they moved farther and farther into darkness step by step and their understanding, their thinking became increasingly confused because in the darkness they were stumbling into things, they were falling over, they were who knows what's going on in the darkness because in the darkness you're just looking for stimulus or who knows what you're looking for, but you're not going to where the light is and you're not finding the truth. And so what's the real problem that's at stake here? And all of a sudden we realize it really is the heart. Listen to the next verse. Due to the hardening of their hearts. That's the real issue, isn't it? The hard heart. What's a hard heart about? It's a heart that just says, God, you know, I think about what you offer. The thing that you want from me is everything. I mean, God, if you and I could just work out a contract where if you could just tell me maybe one day a week I could give to you, maybe an hour and a half, I'll maybe if Sunday was all you asked for, that I could give you. But you want the whole week? My goodness. You even want to have what I think about. I want freedom in that. Uh, you know, I love money. And you seem to think money isn't as important as I do. Oh, God, come on. I've got, I've got to find someone more, more interesting than you. Do you see how it starts to happen? Or it could be power, it could be wisdom, the love of being smart, or we talked about some of those things. But it's interesting that some of the traps are different sort of traps. The problem is 
that we start to move away from God, and no one is so blind as the one who refuses to see. We can even think of the Gospel of John. I think it's chapter 9 where there's this blind man who comes to have sight, and Jesus gives him sight. But who is it that refuses to do anything to respond to Jesus? It's the religious leaders because they've got a set of rules and Jesus is not behaving himself according to their expected set of rules. But in fact, what they're really reflecting is their blindness to the passion and compassion of Jesus Christ for the man born blind. But what's the response of the man who sees Jesus and begins to walk now in the light, now able to see for the very first time? When he sees Jesus, what does he recognize? Only God could do what Jesus had done, and he bows down and worships him. Do you see the difference between the darkness and the light? And do you think that man had any trouble giving his whole life over to Jesus from that point on, every step, now that he's able to walk and see where he's going? I don't think the man had any trouble with that. In fact, I think he found delight in following after Jesus from that time onward. And so... What we find is that there's a conflict between, well, deceptive desires and the truth that's in Christ. Let's pick it up here. I think this is an important piece to look at. The, the text here in verse 21, it says, um, Surely you've heard of him. Um, he talks about don't walk as the Gentiles walk. Turn away from all the kinds of appetites. Um, Oh, having, I'll go back to verse 19. Having lost sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. So the problem of walking in the direction of the darkness is that there's appetites out there, but what are the kinds of appetites that are causing the people to bump around in the darkness? Mostly they're just physical sensuality issues. It felt good, I want more. If eating a little is good, eating a lot is better. If, if getting a hug, a rub, uh, you know, is good, more would be better. If I get a little bit of a stir from cheating or lying or who knows what, a bigger stir would be better. And you see, there's always a stimulus that comes from exploring the dark side. It's always going to be there. It's a little bit like saying, if I pour a little acid on my skin, will it tingle? Oh, it sure does. I should pour more even if it destroys me. You see the folly in that? And so that's the kind of immediate stupid gratification that Paul is confronting here. And it's that stupidity that he says all comes from a hardness of heart. He says, but in verse 20, but you, however, have come to know, you didn't come to know Christ that way. Surely you've heard of him and were taught in him according to the truth that is in Jesus. Now, it's really striking that here we have Paul touching on one of the great themes that I find striking in the New Testament. It's called what I call the truth versus the lie. What I found in my earlier studies, I was, I'm no great Greek student, but I, I stumbled into some bits and pieces of, of insight through my Greek, study, studying Greek. And one of the things that caught my attention is the fact that at times the text translates the lie, the underlying Greek, the lie, into falsehood or lies or that sort of thing. And there's a good reason for that. I'm not here to take on the translators. I think they've done a good job and your Bibles are reliable. But I think there may be a missed point in that. By taking the single word, the lie, 
the singular, and turning it into a global reality without pointing to the reality that I think at the very center of that global falsehood that whenever the Satan speaks, he speaks, it says literally the lie. Jesus said that in John chapter 8. You are of your father. He spoke to a group of professed believers who in fact were not believers at all. He said, no, you're really of your father, the devil. You do the desires of your father. All of that's in John 8. He said, if God were your father, you would love me. You hear the heart issues? Desire, love. And he says, as it is, you are of your father, the, the, the devil. Whenever he speaks, he speaks, and this is what caught my attention. He speaks the lie. I went, whoa, the lie, what's the lie? And it dawned on me that any time we ever hear Satan speaking, what is it that we hear? Sort of a, a constant refrain. It goes something like this. You want to be like God? Do you want to determine what is good and evil on your own? Huh. Jesus, tell you what, I'll give you, I control all the nations of the earth. They've all been, I control them, I rule them. They don't know it, but I do. You know that I rule them. So here's what, Jesus. I'll give my control of the nations over to you. All you need to do is, remember what the, the little come on was? Uh, worship me, God. <laughs> wow, that's pretty compelling stupidity, isn't it? For a creature to ask the creator to worship him. But what's the driving ambition of the serpent? It's always to say, uh, get someone else to worship you. And then you'll be satisfied. If you could just get people to bow down to you, wouldn't that be pleasing? We call it generically pride, don't we? But that's the problem that we see in the serpent. And guess what we have in verse 25, the next text. Therefore, having put away the lie, it says falsehood in my version, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. So what we find is that the Bible is really saying there is ultimately falsehood or technically the lie or there's the truth. And which is it that is the most attractive reality that we're prepared to engage in? Am I living at a given moment in the lie that I can live independently from God in the light of my own wisdom, which is no light at all, it's foolishness, or am I walking towards the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Oh my God, give me more of you. I delight in your truth. I've begun to taste and see how good you are. I need more of you. And that's the invitation that Paul is just presuming a new believer will want to have and pursue. And so as he speaks in such dramatic and clear terms, he says, well, you were taught it with regard to your former way of life to put off your old man, your old self. The underlying word is man. It's, we're politically correct now, and we, we skip the move to the gender-neutral stuff. But I think in some ways it's helpful to remember that the underlying word is man because you really have two men who are in focus. Alternative A, walk in the steps of, who was the man that first went there? A guy named Adam. Or to follow the new Adam, whose name is Jesus Christ. 
So which man do we follow? Which person do we identify with? Whether we're male or female, which direction do we walk? And that's the great question of life. At a given moment to say, Oh, Lord, how would you want me to live? But Peter already got there this morning. But you see how this text sets us up to go there, imitate Christ? And what is it that Christ did? He came because the Father sent him. And what was the motivation? God so loved the world. And the Son came because he loved us and submitted to the Father's purpose. And what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is his motivation for the love of Christ moves me, compels me to do the ministry that I'm doing right now. So what we find is that Paul is inviting us to make that, that commitment of heart to not be hard-hearted because the Spirit of God is always going to be wooing us to the truth that is in Jesus. He's going to be wooing us to put aside that which Adam offered us and to walk in the new directions, to put away the deceitful desires that just are like acid that consume us. We'll literally die from giving ourselves over to the darkness. Or to live in the light and begin to live in life that is eternal so that as this body of ours begins to fade, we find that it's just a container for that which is a treasure beyond words, the union and communion that we have with Christ and through that union and communion with Christ, with God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he pours that love of the divine communion into our hearts, again, as Peter has talked about. See, that's the, that, that's, that's, the, that's the contrast that he sets out here. And he says, so go there, do that. That's the invitation. How then will you live? Now, this is all so upside down. What... what what we're finding here in this text is that Christianity is a, is a strange life. We tend to focus on outward behaviors, don't we? But what is it that this text is really telling us? He's in effect saying, you know, it's the heart that is the core to who we are. And all of our decisions, all of the ways in which we live, our steps are birthed out of the heart. And it's not the behaviors that are the key to who we are. In fact, I could have someone over here singing Jesus songs. Jesus loves me, this I know. And not believing a word of it. It's not the behaviors. It's the heart. It's the direction of where my heart is aimed. In fact, who was it? I think someone put it pretty well. Let me see if I can quote him here. It's in the Bible. Oh, it's our Lord and Savior. Listen to what Jesus has to say. Um, verse, Mark 7, verse 5. And the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders? But they eat with defiled hands. Boy, they haven't done the ceremonial washing. And Jesus said to them, Oh, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, The people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You hear that? All the behaviors could be in place, but the hearts are aimed in a different direction. For you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of man. 
says sometimes we can have the tradition of men dominating the way we live and it's really walking without a heart for God and having a devotion of love and delight in who he is. And so Jesus goes on and he confronts them. Oh, he says, don't you see? Picking it up here in same chapter 7, 18. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Don't you see that Whatever goes into a person from the outside can't defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is then expelled. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, Envy, slander, pride, foolishness. And all these evil things come from within. And that's what defiles a person. Luther really got this. In the Reformation, he was going against the great tradition. At that time, it was the Catholic tradition that was guided largely by the ethics of a, of a pagan philosopher, a guy named Aristotle, Aristotle said the way we become righteous is to practice just or righteous deeds. I referenced this in an earlier sermon. And what did Luther say in his 97 Theses, not his 95 Theses, his 97 Theses, two months before his 95 Theses? He says, we do not become just by practicing just deeds, but independently from God. That's my addition but having been made just, we do just deeds. You see, when our hearts are changed, when the heart of stone is changed for a heart, a living heart, a heart of flesh, when the love of God comes in and captures us. Now, does the Spirit withhold His love from most of the world, but just pick and choose a few? Oh, no. God so loved the world, and every person in the world has been drawn and invited, but guess what? Hardened hearts say, I've got, I've got better things to do, I'm sorry. And there's the problem. And as we offer the love of Christ, we don't know who will respond. But do you hear the point? Oh, folks, offer the love of Christ. But how do we do that? Is it by our outward works? No, it's not. It's just by our inward focus. What is it that's the desire of our heart? You know, a husband and a wife, <laughs> they know what the desire of their spouse is. Well, you say you love God, but honey, I hate to tell you, I know what you really love. You see, if we spend time with someone, it becomes pretty apparent what we really love. And that's, that's daunting, isn't it? But you don't change that from the outside in. You see, it, this is not a shame-producing moment. This is not a guilt-producing moment. It's, it's an invitation to say, tell you what, if any of us are in a place where we say, you know, I really don't know that I love Christ so much. I don't know that I really delight in him. But is he really so beautiful as Ron thinks he is? So here's my invitation to you tonight. Taste and see. The Lord is good. Tell him, I want you. I, I, I want you. I want you. I want you. And there's my challenge. God, give me your heart and I will receive it. And I'm going to open my heart to you and ask that you would fill my life with your spirit so that your love will be poured into my heart and, and I could then begin to respond to it 
like I had never done before when I used to walk as the Gentiles walked. Is that fair enough? It's a fair invitation, isn't it? And just say, I I want more. I want more. You can pray that tomorrow morning too. You don't have to just pray it once. But you have to, if you've never made that commitment to try it, well, then you've got to do that. But after you've done it, just say, Lord, another new day. I want more. I've begun to taste and see how good you are. I want more. Let's pray. Oh, Father, it's a good thing to be able to think on the riches of your love towards us, to know that, yeah, we all have some measure, a hardness of heart, and we're invited out of that. And I pray that our hearts would be tender to the invitation of your Spirit. Then maybe even this afternoon, this evening, tonight, we'd just have that little time aside and say, Lord, I really want my heart to be open to you. Search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any false way in me. And lead me, please, in the everlasting ways. And God, I pray that in, in that little encounter that your spirit would just uh, embrace us and capture us, invite us more than ever before to come to you and to turn away from the old steps that used to hold us and to walk in a new direction. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.